Good evening, everyone. Well, we are going to close out the formal portion of the Three Angels messages today. Tomorrow will be a bit of a summary for us and um, bring you some highlights and some important closing thoughts. But as far as the, the text proper, this will be our last. Um, I've been blessed by this, reminding myself of what I believe is true. It's a good exercise to be involved in ministry, to not just hear something in a sermon from Doug Batchelor 15 years ago and believe that I still believe it and know why. It's good to dig into these things and restudy them and restudy them and dig into them afresh. So thank you for giving me that privilege just to rehash something that's very important to me. Uh, but what I'd like to do is to cover something that I believe is of paramount importance for us to get right, uh, not just as the Seventh-day Adventist church, but as Christians at large. Uh, this evening we're going to be looking at a specific series of events in the life of Jesus that most clearly reveal what Revelation 14, 12 refers to as the faith of Jesus. And I believe that this is the most powerful and life-changing story that has ever been told and ever will be told. And so I would encourage you to plead with God this evening to allow this story to come alive to you in a way that it never has before, to plead with God tonight, God, speak to me, and allow this story to do something that will change me forever. So uh, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then uh, we will begin our actual message. I'll kneel to invite you to bow your heads. Sweet Jesus, I thank you that the gospel is good news. And Lord, I freely confess tonight that I don't have what these people need, but you do. And so I'm reminded of the words of the song that if you would choose to use me, my Savior, in spite of my fears and all of my failures, I'm not much to look at, but whatever I am, I'm yours. I'm yours. Jesus, use me, I'm yours, is my plea. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this evening's story will largely be coming from the four Gospels. Isaiah 53, Psalm 18, Psalm 22, Desire of Ages, the chapters on Gethsemane, Calvary, and It is Finished. And the second volume of the Testimonies, chapter 29, called The Sufferings of Christ. I'm not going to be able to give you references for all those as they're happening. So that's just kind of the big picture where they come from. And again, my notes, uh, the media department has those. They can send you a Google Drive link where you can download those for yourself. And I have an open email that I need to put your email address into and you will get it. So uh, I made him a promise and I'm going to do them solid. So I've got that there. Okay. So we're told this, I don't think this is in the slides, so I'll skip that. So the want in the religious experience, this is from the 1888 materials, the want, what is missing and what is most needed in the religious experience is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as presented in the gospel. We're told in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now this implies a few things. The first thing that it implies is that God saw value in what he was seeking, right? When Jesus came to this earth, he saw value in you. That's why he came to seek and to save us. But it also implies that he's the one taking the initiative to bring about the solution, even though we are in a horrible condition. He's making the first move, the first gesture of goodwill. He's not waiting on us to respond. In fact, the way that agape works is that it gives whether it ever receives back or not. Because that's just how God does life. Now we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So Jesus did not write a check for the price of sin. He didn't say, how much does the, the, the guilt of humanity cost? And let me get my checkbook out and I'll write something for that exact amount. He didn't write a check for the price of sin. Jesus literally became sin and received the wrath of God towards sin to set us free. But what does that look like and what does that teach us about the faith of Jesus? Well, let's begin that story and see. In John chapter 13, uh, verses, uh, 
actually John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, Ellen White kind of alludes to this whole section of scripture. She said that Jesus had been earnestly conversing with his disciples and instructing them. But as he neared Gethsemane, he became strangely silent. He had often visited this spot for meditation and prayer, but never with a heart so full of sorrow as upon this night of his last agony. Throughout his whole life on earth, he had walked in the light of God's presence. When in conflict with men who were inspired by the very spirit of Satan, he could say, He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. But she continues, But now he seemed to be shut out from the light of God's sustaining presence. Now he was numbered with the transgressors. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear, and upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. So dreadful does sin appear to him. So great is the weight of guilt which he must bear that he's tempted to fear that it will shut him out forever from his father's love. This is overwhelmingly unfamiliar to him. He has always basked in the presence of the Father's love. But this is so bad, so heinous, that he is tempted to believe that he will forever be shut out from his Father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And as they approached the garden, the disciples had marked the change that came over their master. Never before had they seen him so utterly sad and silent. And as he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened, yet they dared not question him as to the cause. You ever seen somebody suffering and it made you uncomfortable? You know that they're not doing well. You know something is troubling them deeply but you didn't have the courage to say anything. Yeah, Jesus was on the other end of that. This is uncomfortable for the disciples. Jesus has always been calm, cool, and collected all the time. Their confidence was based upon the confidence of Jesus. But as Jesus is seemingly falling apart at the seams in front of them, they don't know what to do with that. And that happens to us, doesn't it? We find ourselves ignoring people in need and not reaching out because we don't know what to do with how uncomfortable we feel, and we leave them to suffer alone. That's where Jesus is. He's left to suffer alone, even though his friends know that something's wrong. And as he proceeded, the strange sadness deepened, yet they dared not question him as to the cause, and his form swayed as if it were about to fall. Upon reaching the garden, the disciples looked anxiously for his usual place of retirement that their master might rest. Every step that he now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud. Jesus wails because of what he's feeling inside. No physical hands have been laid upon him at this point, but he is deeply emotionally, physiologically, and spiritually distressed. He groaned aloud as a suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him or he would have fallen to the earth. This weight is so difficult that when Jesus crosses the threshold of the Garden of Gethsemane, a superhuman weight has been placed upon him, and he gets to the point that his legs collapse out from under him, and the disciples have to catch him to keep him from falling. He felt that by sin, he was being separated from his father. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep, that his spirit shuddered before it. In this agony, he must not exert his divine power to escape. As man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. And as man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that in which he had ever stood before. 
as the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. He saw what justice meant. Hitherto, he had been an intercessor for others. But now he longed for an intercessor for himself. I wish somebody would pray for me. You ever been there? You're that person. Everyone comes to you, and and anytime they have spiritual needs, they come to you. But then you have needs, and you don't know where to go. This is where Jesus is. I wish somebody would pray for me. And are they? The psychological agony is so intense that physiologically, Jesus begins to bleed through his pores. The weight of sin is so oppressive and horrible that it's pressing the life forces out of Jesus, and he's bleeding through his pores. You know what the word Gethsemane means? It's the press. It's a place where they smash oil out of olives. Jesus is having the life forces pressed out of him. And again, this is before a single hand has been laid upon him. No whips upon his back, no punches in the face, no thorn of crowns, crown of thorns, and no crucifixion. You and I under these same circumstances can check out emotionally and psychologically. Anyone who's worked in a trauma setting or in public safety knows this. That thousand yard stare that the lights are on but no one's home. When you just check out because it's too much. Yet Jesus doesn't have that option. Jesus can't run to social media to escape his pain. He can't run to someone else. He has to bear this pain and he bears it alone. And then the question is posed. What was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men. In its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you, Jesus. They're seeking to destroy you. One of your own disciples who's listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. All will forsake you. Christ's whole being abhorred the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan. This pierced his soul. The conflict was terrible. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ, and the sense of God's wrath against sin was literally crushing out his life. Behold him contemplating the price to be paid for the human soul. In his agony, he clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn any further from God. And we're told this, the human heart longs for sympathy in suffering. Is that true? This longing Christ felt to the very depths of his being. And the, he just wished that Peter, James, or John would crawl across that cold gravel and lay a hand on his shoulder. Jesus, we're here. They can't tell him it's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. And what does he get? Nothing. Jesus gets nothing from them. In the supreme agony of his soul, he came to his disciples with a yearning desire to hear some words of comfort from those whom he had so often blessed and comforted and shielded in sorrow and distress. The one who had always had words of sympathy for them was now suffering superhuman agony. And he longed to know that they were praying for him and for themselves. Were they? No. How dark seemed the malignity of sin. Terrible was the temptation to let the human race bear the consequences of its own guilt while he stood innocent before God. 
Jesus is strongly tempted to leave us in this moment, guys, because the devil's telling him, these people don't appreciate you. They don't care about you. Where are your boys, Jesus? And where are his boys? Sleeping when he needs them the most. And in his flesh, he is tempted to shrink from this responsibility. If he could only know that his disciples understood and appreciated this pressure he's dealing with, he would be strengthened. Did they? So was he strengthened? No. Then Jesus prays three prayers, begging the Father to change his might. Father, if it is possible, please let this cup pass from me. Now, the cup that Jesus is referring to here is the same cup that's talked about in the three angels' messages, the cup of God's unmingled wrath. And Jesus is about to drink this thing to the dregs. We're told in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 2, that in this moment, Jesus was realizing his Father's frown. He has always been in the favor and the presence of God. And in this moment, he is sensing the overwhelming frown of his father's face. He had taken the cup of suffering from the lips of guilty man and proposed to drink it himself. And in its place, give to man the cup of blessing. The wrath of God that would have fallen upon man was now falling upon Christ. And it was here that the mysterious cup trembles in Jesus' hand. The sins of a lost world were upon him and overwhelming him. And again, it was a sense of his father's frown in consequence of sin, which rent his heart with such piercing agony and forced from his brow great drops of blood, which rolling down the pale cheeks fell to the earth, moistening the earth." The unmingled wrath of God is being poured out upon God. It's a seeming contradiction in terms. But only God can endure the wrath of God and burst through that tomb on day three. Amen? Only Jesus could be our sacrifice. Only Jesus could stand in our stead. And as Jesus is pleading with the Father, Father, please let this cup pass from me. It's in this moment that your face comes into the mind of Jesus. And this is what gives him the intrinsic motivation to even mutter the words, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But as humanity shrinks from this responsibility again and says, Father, please, And a third time, Father, please let this cup pass from me. And again, he's reminded of your fate if he doesn't go through with this. And says, nevertheless, if this is what it takes, I'll go forward. And it's in this very moment that we're told something that is just heartbreaking and amazing. His decision is made, and he will save man at any cost to himself. I don't care how hard it is, how much it hurts, how much I don't want to do this anymore. This train will not stop. Whatever they deserve and whatever it takes, lay it on me, he says. His decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. But Jesus isn't the only one who's hurting and suffering in this moment. God suffered with his son, and there was silence in heaven. Heaven is not a place that's known for being silent. Read the book of Revelation. But in this moment, not a word is spoken. Everyone's focus is on their champion, What will he do? Heaven falls silent. Could mortals have viewed the amazement of the angelic hosts as in silent grief? They watched the Father separating his beams, 
of light, love, and glory from His beloved Son, they would better understand how offensive in His sight is sin. If we saw what they saw, we would not do what we do. This is a holy and strange act. And then God has to send an angel from the right hand of the Father to do for Jesus what Peter, James, and John did not do. And it's this touching and heartbreaking scene in Desire of Ages in the Gethsemane chapter where the angel comes down beside Jesus and we're told that he cradles the head of Jesus in his bosom and speaks tender words of encouragement to him, reminding him of the promises of God. Do you remember at the baptism, Jesus, that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? It's still true. And it's going to be worth it. Jesus, you will see the travail of your soul and be satisfied. And John opens his eyes at this stage, and he looks across the courtyard, and they see Jesus being cradled by this angel, and he's pointing to heaven. Encouraging Jesus, we need you to go forward. They need you to go forward. And what is implied by what Jesus' own words said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death, is that Jesus never would have made it out of that garden were it not for this angel coming to strengthen him. But he is strengthened. And then when he takes the disciples to the gate of the garden... He's greeted by a brute group of guards with implements they're not going to need for Jesus. He's a man of peace. And he's greeted by Judas and betrayed by a kiss. And in this moment, Jesus musters the unselfish love to refer to this man as friend. Friend. Some of us in this room right now have people in our lives that we cannot refer to as friend. Because what they did was too much. They went too far, and I just can't. In His strength, you can. We're not saying you need to return to abusive circumstances or have this person in your day-to-day life. But what we are saying is... The disposition of your heart can change towards this person by the grace and strength of Christ. Amen? Amen. He can set us free from the bitterness and the anger that's holding us back. Then Peter has a brilliant idea, and he gets a sword and hacks Malchus's ear off, thinking he's doing Jesus a favor. And Jesus says, put your sword in its place, Peter. I don't need violence and violent arguments to defend my kingdom. If I wanted to, I could summon multitudes of angels to defend me. But I don't want to. They're not taking my life. I'm giving myself for them. And unfortunately, there are many in our ranks who are just like Peter. And they think that violent arguments against people they disagree with is doing the kingdom of God a favor. And they are dead wrong. And Jesus would tell them the exact same thing. Put your sword in its place. This war is not won by taking. It's won by giving. These argumentative discourses these knockdown drag outs on Facebook and websites with quote-unquote articles that are largely arguments against each other and against fellow Adventists, this has to stop. It is not honoring God, and it's fueling hatred for fellow Christians and shame on us. And I'm talking about both sides of the aisle. YouTube channels committed to standing for present truth, criticizing 
the object upon which Christ places His supreme regard and shame on us. It is dishonoring God, and it needs to stop. Stopping just short of referring to the remnant church as Babylon, because we know good enough that Ellen White says that calling the remnant church Babylon is the work of Satan. When you're implying that that's the case, you're still doing the work of Satan and get a different job. We're not helping Jesus with this stuff, guys. Put your sword in its place. Then Jesus is given this sham of a trial where the word justice isn't even invited to the conversation. And then we're told in Isaiah chapter 52 that he's beaten beyond the point of recognition. You can't even recognize who this man is when they're done with him. Two floggings and other violence, senseless violence. Then he's brought before the Jews. And what do they have to say for the man that came to save them? We will not have this man as Lord over us. We have no king but Caesar and give us Barabbas. And we think to ourselves, what savages, what monsters to say such a thing? But we need to come face to face with the fact that every time that we choose our choice sins over Jesus, we're saying the exact same thing. I will not have this man as Lord over me. I have no king but Caesar. And give me Barabbas. I'm no better than them. None of us are. All of us, were it not for the grace of God, deserve to die because of our sins. But we have the grace of God. Amen? We're not better than them. Never have been. Never will be. Then comes the next, and I believe one of the most impactful moments of Jesus' vulnerability in his life. Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 16 and verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You acquainted with this text? You know, it dawned on me a couple years ago. What did it look like when he picked up his? If Jesus is telling us, to pick up our cross and follow him, what did it look like when he picked up his cross? Well, in John chapter 19 and verse 17, we're told that in he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. But in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 32, we're told that now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. I have an important question for us this evening. Does the Bible contradict itself, yes or no? No. These are not statements of contradiction. They're statements of chronology. Jesus began in carrying his cross, and someone else gets involved. We'll see if I can make it through this. As Jesus passed the gate of Pilate's court, the cross which had been prepared for Barabbas was placed upon his bruised and bleeding shoulders. Two companions of Barabbas were to suffer death at the same time with Jesus, and upon them also crosses were placed. But the Savior's burden was too heavy for him in his weak and suffering condition. Since the Passover supper with his disciples, he had taken neither food nor drink. He had agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane in conflict with satanic agencies. He had endured the anguish of the betrayal and had seen his disciples forsake him and flee. He had been taken to Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to Pilate. From Pilate he had been sent to Herod, then again to Pilate. From insult to renewed insult, from mockery to mockery, twice tortured by the scourge, all that night there had been a scene after scene of a character to try the soul of man to the uttermost, but Christ had not failed. He had spoken no word, but that tended to glorify God. All through the disgraceful farce of a trial, he had borne himself with firmness and dignity. But when after the second scourging, the cross was laid upon him, human nature could bear no more. And he fell fainting beneath the burden. 
The crowd that followed the Savior saw his weak and staggering steps, but they manifested no compassion. They taunted and reviled him because he could not carry the heavy cross. Again, the burden was laid upon him, and again, he fell fainting to the ground. And his persecutors saw that it was impossible for him to carry his burden further. And they were puzzled to find anyone who would bear this humiliating load. The Jews themselves could not do this because the defilement would prevent them from keeping the Passover. None, even in the mob that followed him, would stoop to bear the cross. And so Simon comes along and he carries the cross. And this is a great blessing to him because it leads to his conversion. But the question was, if Jesus is telling us to take up our cross and follow him, what's that going to look like? You're going to collapse. It's going to be too much for you to carry. And that's the point. The cross that we've been called to bear today, beloved, you're not supposed to carry on your own. It is not a weakness to need help, beloved. And Jesus makes a fool of himself to make this point clear to us. That when I look at Jesus and I see myself collapsing under the weight of the cross, this tells me that I'm not a loser when I collapse under the weight of that cross. Because he wasn't a loser. Are you with me? The very fact that Jesus collapses under the weight of his cross makes it abundantly clear that I'm not a loser when I collapse under the cross that I'm bearing today. So if you've had to go through the agonizing and humiliating effort to carry the cross that you've been given, only to collapse under its load, you have a Savior who understands today. We have to come face to face with the fact that we cannot bear the cross we've been given, that we need help from a source outside of us. And again, Jesus humiliates himself to give us that example. Vulnerability is not a weakness, beloved. It's a strength. And we see this modeled in the life and sufferings of Jesus. Then he's nailed to this demonic torture device. And as they strip him naked and nail him to this cross, they heave it in the air and slam it into the hole in the rock that's prepared for it. And every nerve and sinew of his body has fire running through it. And yet we're told this strange line in Desire of Ages that his physical pain was, quote-unquote, hardly felt in comparison with the emotional, psychological, and spiritual agony that Jesus is enduring in this moment. Then these thoughts of unbelief are heaped in the face of Jesus. If you're the Son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross, Jesus, then we'll believe in you. Someone crucified next to Jesus says, if you're the son of God, save yourself and us. And irony of ironies, it's precisely because Jesus is the son of God that he's not coming down from that cross. And he's already saving them. They just haven't figured it out yet. Then this voice of sophistry returns. You're wasting your time, Jesus. These people don't care about you. They don't appreciate you. Why continue with this madness? And they make a pretty good point. You ever had to give for people that don't care? It's hard, isn't it? Thankfully, Jesus isn't like me. But now the only consistent thing that Jesus has had for 33 and a half years, the presence and the approval of his father is now gone. Jesus is in a horrific bout with the absence of God when he needs him the most. Jesus is enduring the deafening silence of God. And he's also enduring the deafening silence of the closest people that he has on earth. He's suffering alone. 
And then words come out of the mouth of Jesus that you do not expect to hear from someone who's been in fellowship with God from eternity past. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quote. I want to get into the faith of Jesus here. This is a direct quote from Psalm 22. And to the onlookers, it seems as though Jesus has lost faith. But if you're familiar with the text, there's a point of transition in the middle of the chapter. It's in verse 21 where it says, you have answered me. The beginning is questioning, where are you? God, why have you forsaken me? I don't understand what's going on. But then in verse 21, there's a turning point. You have answered me. And then the psalm ends with praise. For he is, verse 24, for he is not despised nor abhorred the afflicted or the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. The faith of Jesus pierces through the darkness and chooses to rest in the Father's love heretofore given him. And he chooses to believe something that he does not feel right now. That God loves him. That God has not left him. Satan has cast an impenetrable cloud of darkness into the mind of Jesus. And in the experiential mind of Jesus, it literally is as if the Father is nowhere to be found. Total radio silence. And then in verse 27 of Psalm 22, it shows what him persevering in faith will accomplish. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This is what Jesus said would happen in John 12, 32. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. But that word peoples is supplied. It's so much bigger than that. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all to me, the unfallen universe, the unfallen angels. But the darkness that Jesus is experiencing right now in his closing hours was eclipsing his statement of John 12, 32. And he had to choose to persevere through faith, to believe what God had said before he was going through this difficulty, and to rest in his Father's love even when he couldn't feel it. So Jesus didn't just happen to remember Psalm 22 and verse 1, just in case things ever got nasty and he got tempted. His whole life was filled with the reality of God's presence. But Jesus memorized the whole chapter. And this statement on the cross shows that Jesus' faith pierces through the darkness and he rests in his Father's love even when he can't feel it. So when Jesus is claiming Psalm 22 and verse 1, which seems like a statement of defeat, he's also claiming the rest of the chapter, which ends in victory. It is finished. And he claimed this promise by faith because he did not feel that way. But we're told in Desire of Ages, page 753, that in that thick darkness, the reason why it looks like midnight, even though it's noonday, we're told in Zyre of Ages 753, in that thick darkness, God's presence was hidden. He makes darkness His pavilion and concealed His glory from human eyes. This is alluded to in Psalm 18, I believe. And conceals His glory from human eyes. God and His holy angels were beside the cross. And there's a very important point for you and I tonight. There are moments in our experience where we are fully convinced that God is nowhere to be found when we need Him the most, but that does not make it true. Because in the very moment when Jesus felt that the Father was the farthest from Him that He had been for 33 and a half years, the Father was the closest to Him that He had been for 33 and a half years. And we're told in Desire of Ages that our moments of greatest discouragement are the times when divine help is nearest. We cannot put stock in our feelings, beloved. We cannot put stock in those feelings of discouragement and despondency. Just because you feel that God is nowhere to be found does not make that true. If it wasn't true for Jesus, it's not true for you. Are you with me? This is so important when we are wrestling with the silence of God to see this truth. 
The father was with his son, yet his presence was not revealed. And had his glory flashed forth from the cloud, every human beholder would have been destroyed. It was the mercy of God that veils himself, because you and I probably be inclined to believe that these people who are crucifying Jesus deserve to die for what they're doing. And yet this is what the Bible refers to as mercy and justice embrace each other and kiss each other at the cross of Calvary. The justice and mercy of God come face to face. God is pouring out justice on his son while sparing those who crucify his son. Why? So they can have a chance to respond to the faith of Jesus that's happening before their very eyes. You know what this implies to me? God is not looking for reasons to keep you out of heaven. He's looking for every reason he can to get you into heaven. But he will leave that decision with you. And in that dreadful hour, Christ was not to be comforted with the Father's presence. He trod the winepress alone, and of the people, there was none with them. And you know why? Because there's times when you and I tread the winepress alone, and there's no one with us. And as we talked about in the everlasting gospel, we do not have a Savior or a high priest who is not acquainted with our weakness, but was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And then he tells us to let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus understands those feelings and he's willing to help you. What he's asking of you is just to come boldly. But what is it that keeps Jesus going through all of this madness? Why continue? There's one thing in the mind of Jesus at this stage. You know what that is? It's you. It's you. Jesus cannot bear the thought of losing you. It is unthinkable and unacceptable to him. We're told that heaven was not a place to be desired while, he, while we were lost. And so Jesus comes into enemy-occupied territory, and he's going through this horrible, hellacious experience because he does not want to lose you. And that also is the faith of Jesus. He sees something of value in you that you don't even see in yourself. And Jesus treats you as if that's who you really were. Why? To awaken within you a desire to live a life that would honor such a sacrifice. The faith of Jesus, seeing something in you that you don't see in yourself and treating you accordingly, whether you live up to that potential or not. And in this stage, Jesus cannot see through the portals of the tomb. He is fully convinced in his own mind that when he breathes his last breath, it is forever. He will never see the light of day again. He will never see the Father again. And even if this plan of salvation does work and you're saved, he's not going to be there to see it, guys. This is what Jesus' reality looks like in his mind. And yet John chapter 13 tells us, In verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Guys, Jesus truly loved you to the end of himself. He believed that when I breathe my last breath, it's over. And he was willing to love you to the end of himself. Because that's what agape does. That's what the faith of Jesus does. In fact, that word loved in John 13 is agape. Desire of Ages 756. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. And in those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. He had to rely upon what God had said before he was going through this terrible experience. He was acquainted with the character of his father, and he understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. This is why having a true and healthy picture of God is paramount, of paramount importance. 
if we do not have healthy views of God before the time of trouble, we're not going to magically produce a healthy picture of God during the time of trouble. Are you understanding? Jesus was secure in his identity and the acceptance that God lavished upon him before he went through this hell. And so when he goes through this difficulty, he relies upon what he previously knew to be true, even when he could not feel it right now. And this is what God's people are going to need at the close of time. That's what it means when it says, here are they who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. They will choose to rest in their father's love, even when they can't feel it. And they will rely upon what God has showed in the past, even if it's not feeling that way right now. By faith, he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission, he committed himself to God. The sense of his father's favor was withdrawn. But by faith, Christ was victor. Amen. And then as Jesus is resurrected and gets into the gates of heaven, the angels erupt in praise. You have never seen a worship service like this in your life. And in the midst, of, and just imagine being Jesus. He has spent 33 and a half years not being appreciated, not receiving the love and joy and gratitude that he deserves. And you can imagine that his love tank is pretty empty right now, and it would be nice to finally be appreciated. But that's not the way Jesus responds. As they erupt in praise, Jesus looks at the angels and says, No! No, I will not accept your worship. And he presses into the Father, and he has one question. Can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? Guys, you are always on the mind of Jesus. All he can think about in this moment is you. Not their praise. Father, can those whom you have given me be with me where I am? Are you pleased? And the Father says, yes. And he embraces his son for the first time in 33 and a half years. Yes, they can come. Then he accepts their worship. Beloved, there is never, he, he loses sleep over you guys. He can't sleep at night. You're all he thinks about. All he wants is to know that you're secure, that you're safe, that you're happy, and that you're whole. Some of us didn't have parent figures. Some of us don't have people that check in on us like we wish. You got one in Jesus. He's always thinking about you. And there's never a time when he's not thinking about you. This is why Revelation chapter 12 says that the heavens should rejoice, but woe to the earth. It says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, actually, I skipped a quote. I'm sorry for this. But as Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. For, uh, I'll come back to that, actually. Never mind. I'll come back to that. So in Revelation chapter 12, it says that the heavens should rejoice, but woe to the earth. And this is what's saying in verse 10 of Revelation 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who's accused them before our God day and night has been cast down and say hallelujah this evening. This is in direct response to the cross event. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. And you know why? Because the lives that they were living led to death. And they found something better in the faith of Jesus. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. This sacrifice of Jesus even makes the unfallen worlds and angels more secure. I'll give you a homework assignment. Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. Write this down. Signs of the Times, December 30, 1889. It's an article entitled, What Was Secured by the Death of Christ? It was the victory in the cosmic conflict. 
It's much bigger than just your salvation of mine, though I'm grateful for that. It even guards the angels from future apostasy, we're told. Designed to the Times, December 30, 1889, what was secured by the death of Christ? Heaven and the unfallen worlds are made, have made up their minds in this great controversy and cosmic conflict. They're fully on the Lord's side, but the case has now been moved to our planet. What are you going to decide? Whose side are you going to take? Who will have your affections? So if you're wondering if God can accept you today, Calvary says, yes, yes, and amen. Ephesians 1 tells us you are accepted in the beloved. Jeremiah 31 and verse 3 says, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. The cross of Christ is like a magnet of grace. John 12, 32, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And again, that word peoples is supplied. And I believe Ellen White's drawing from that principle inside to the times, December 30, 1889. But one more thought on Jesus' closing moments. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But think through the context of what Jesus is feeling when he says that. Jesus is praying to his father, whom he's tempted to believe has abandoned him and isn't answering his prayers. And yet he's pleading for the father to help you and me. Beloved, if that's not the faith of Jesus, what is? He is resting, though even though he's not feeling answers to his prayers, he's not being comforted. He still has enough faith in the father's love for you that he prays for you anyway. The faith of Jesus on display. And Ellen White comments on this particular prayer. Listen to this. She says, That prayer of Christ for his enemies embraced who? The world. It took in every sinner that had lived or should live. From the beginning of the world to the end of time, upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. And to all, forgiveness is freely offered. Whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life. This also tells me that when God's special people at the end of time have received the faith of Jesus, that their focus is going to be outward. It isn't self-focused. He helped the thief he helped his mother and he prayed for us so that same spirit can be given to us and it will cause us to look outward in our crisis and not inward. That's what receiving the faith of Jesus looks like. So why did he go through all this? In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11, it says, He shall see the travail or the labor of his soul and be satisfied. As Jesus, before he suffers, looks at what he's going to endure, he's satisfied. As Jesus is suffering, he's satisfied. And as he looks back upon what he did suffer, he's still satisfied. Why? Because by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. In short, you're justified, he's satisfied. That's the gospel, beloved. Jesus believes that you are worth that price, whether you believe that or not. Christ went through all this because he saw in you a pearl of great price. He saw a value in you that you don't even see in yourself. And he's asking you to respond with the reciprocating faith. Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And now we see why it's amazing. For it's the power of God what draws us and keeps us to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. Jesus is overcoming and pursuing, overcoming and pursuing faith in us to faith, our reciprocating faith in him. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And he's quoting from Habakkuk in the original language it reads, the just shall live by his faith. Christ's faith, not by your faith, by the faith of Jesus. No one is going to find and place their faith in Jesus until they first encounter the faith of Jesus. 
1 John 4, 16, we love him because he first loved us. So the two bookends of the three angels' messages are the everlasting gospel and the faith of Jesus. Both are talking about the same thing. A suffering Messiah who perseveres through his faith and who gives that faith to his people, which will propel them to preach that gospel to the whole world. We can't lose sight of this. This contextualizes the entire message. So the first part of the three angels' messages of the gospel and the last part of the three angels' messages in the gospel, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just guessing here that everything else in the middle relates to the gospel. And so if we are not seeing Jesus as we're preaching the three angels' messages, we're not doing it right. We have missed the point And all we're doing is making more doomsday, apocalyptic, tinfoil hat-wearing saints. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now, the only way that people can be viewed as having kept the commandments in the past or as being capable of keeping them in the future or the present is because of having first encountered the faith of Jesus. Only his sufferings and death and righteous life can make one righteous. Listen to this. Many who profess to be Christians become excited over worldly enterprises, and their interest is awakened for some new and exciting amusements, while they are cold-hearted and appear as if frozen in the cause of God. Here is a theme, poor formalist, which is of sufficient importance to excite you. Eternal interests are here involved. Upon this theme, the theme of the cross, it is sin to be calm and unimpassioned. The scenes of Calvary call for the deepest emotion. And upon this subject, you will be excusable if you manifest enthusiasm. Now you can say amen. amen. My days, it took all week. I should have whipped this quote out the first day. The Lord has given me a message for you. This is the last written letter we have from Ella White. And she wrote it to a discouraged saint. That's what she says. The Lord has given me a message for you, and not for you only, but also for other faithful souls who are troubled by doubts and fears regarding their acceptance by the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you. His word to you is, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. You desire to please the Lord, and you can do this by believing his promises. You want to make the Lord happy? Believe what he says about you. You're mine. You're my beloved. He's waiting to take you into a harbor of gracious experience. Sorry about that. He's waiting to take you into a harbor of gracious experience, and he bids you, be still and know that I am God. You've had a time of unrest, but Jesus says to you, come unto me, and I will give you rest. The joy of Christ in the soul is worth everything, and then are they glad because they're privileged to rest in the arms of everlasting love. She wrote another letter to a discouraged saint. She did this a lot. Listen to this one. The message from God to me for you is, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. If you have nothing else to plead before God but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never never be turned away. How many people in this room have nothing to offer God tonight? Well, guess what? You can come into Jesus' presence with this verse. You can come into the Father's presence with this verse, and you're not going to be turned away. It may seem that you're hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise, and it will open to you the whole treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise, and you are safe. Him that cometh unto me, I will no wise cast out. Present this, listen to this, present this assurance to Jesus and you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. If you have nothing to offer Jesus this evening, but that promise that he who comes unto me, I will no wise cast out in that moment. You are as safe as though inside of the city of God, which again implies that God is looking for every reason to get you into that city And not keep you out. There's a reason there's 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. Ease of access. God wants you in the kingdom. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they might be with me where I am. He longs for that. The faith of Jesus, it is talked of but not understood. 
What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated. And he came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. She's quoting 2 Corinthians 5.21. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is us receiving the faith of Jesus. Oh, I love this lady so much. Anyone else want to give Auntie Ellen a big old hug when you get to heaven? Oh, man. Me first. E.J. Wagner, a great gospel preacher of the 1800s, says this. God chooses men not for what they are, but for what he can make of them. And there is no limit to what he can make of even the meanest and most depraved if they're only willing and believe his word. The faith of Jesus. But I want to close with the idea of what happens when people reject this most precious message and how serious it is when we do so in the face of God's extraordinary efforts to save us from sin. Wagner again. And so it went throughout the plague, speaking of Egypt. All the steps in each case are not recorded, but we see that it was the long-suffering and mercy of God that hardened Pharaoh's heart. The same preaching that comforted the hearts of many in the days of Jesus made others more bitter against him. The raising of Lazarus from the dead fixed the determination in the hearts of the unbelieving Jews to kill him. Listen to this. This blew me away. The judgment will reveal the fact that everyone who has in hardness of heart rejected the Lord has done so in the face of the revelation of his mercy. Not one soul will pass unto death without encountering a revelation of his mercy. And we see his revelation of mercy so clearly in the three angels' messages. And the revelation of his mercy in the three angels' messages is repeated again in Revelation 18, in case we missed it, in the loud cry to the world, the last message of mercy. And I imagine when I read this quote, that Jesus is basically saying, if anyone is going to end up lost by taking the road to perdition, they're going to have to trip over my dead body to get there. I'm not letting you go down without a fight, he says. Jesus does not want you to be lost. He did not hold anything back. Everything was placed on the altar. He's been tenaciously pursuing the lost throughout salvation history. And this beautiful and most precious message is his last opportunity to bring in whosoever will before that door of mercy closes. Again, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the end of their ability to make a right choice at the end of the day and the end of his life. Guys, think about the privilege that God has given us to share this message of mercy with the dying world. He could have sent literal angels to do this, but he doesn't. He's sending you, and he's sending me. I remember Matt Parra, one of the teachers at the Arise program, mentioned this in a sermon soon after that program that just moved me deeply. He asked a really logical question. He was talking about the faith of Jesus in a practical sense. But he says, why would God choose to believe in people that he knows good and well aren't going to respond? You ever wrestled with that? He said, what God knows doesn't change who he is. And love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's how he does life, guys. He can't turn that off just because we're jerks and ignore him. He is literally going to love in you and love you and believe in you to the end of time. It is impossible for God to not believe in you. This is what the faith of Jesus does. So we have a charge to preach this message to the world, and how they respond is none of our business. That's not your problem. Your job is to give them this beautiful truth. So the faith of Jesus that will be received by his people in Revelation 14 is a faith that pierces through any darkness or doubt and rests in his Father's love, and one that sees the value in the people that have been purchased. We will see people for what God can make of them, not for what they currently are. The faith of Jesus in God's last day, people. Has this made sense this evening? Yes or no?
God in heaven, you know our hearts and you know that we're but dust. And Lord Jesus, we admit the fact that everything we heard tonight of what you suffered is my fault. I did this. My sins killed Jesus. And Lord, we're sorry. God, I pray that you would forgive our sins, our hard-heartedness, our indifference, our selfishness, our arrogance, our petty differences with our neighbors. God, help us. We confess today that we're but nothing. And Lord, I would be remiss if I didn't say this evening and give an opportunity for someone. If there's someone in this room this evening who is seeing for the first time that God loves me and there truly is a home that I'm welcome in and that I want to take hold of that today, I want to invite you to raise your hand to heaven. If you're realizing for the first time and maybe for the first time again, maybe you lost your first love, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. Jesus, I want in. I don't want to leave anything on the table. Jesus, take me and make me wholly thine. Take my heart, for I cannot give it. Lord, I pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you would do in, through, and for us what we are wholly incapable of doing for ourselves. Give us the faith of Jesus, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.